1: Hey y'all, before we get into today's episode, we wanted to play you a clip for a show that we are absolutely obsessed with. We talk about them all the time. It is A Date With Dateline. If you are a Dateline fan, you have got to listen to the show. Kimberly and Katie are amazing. They are hilarious. And if you need a little bit of a lighter show that you can add to your rotation in addition to ours, then A Date With Dateline is perfect. Check it out
0: diabolical
1: vengeance
0: betrayal
1: bad hair leaning hi everyone this is kimberly
0: and this is katie
1: and we have a weekly podcast called a date with dateline a recap of dateline episodes we talk about important issues like grainy surveillance footage cell phone towers andrea canning's white jeans and manky's hankies we delve into the details of any victim who's ever loved life or lit up a room So find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and iTunes
0: to make A Date With Dateline.
1: And remember, don't watch alone. A Date With Dateline is a
0: podcast hosted by two professional amateur true crime TV experts with no formal training but evidence lockers filled with snark and uninformed opinions.
1: Hello and welcome to Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Torella. And I'm your better, prettier, younger host, Tori. We're sisters who are obsessed with true crime and love gal palin' with you about cases. You can expect the occasional curse word, lots of friends quotes, and all the 90s nostalgia. To get in on the conversation, check us out at KillerQueensPodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at KillerQueensPodcast. And we're on YouTube at KillerQueens, a true crime podcast. Okay, y'all, grab your Capri Suns or your Surge and let's talk about some true crime. Well, welcome back. Yeah, if you are a patron, we just talked to you. Mm-hmm. Like we most likely we missed you already. Oh yeah, and one hundred percent. And if you're not a patron, we missed you too. Yeah, we missed everyone. It's been forever, you know. No. Ah, oh, okay. Well, you know, I guess it's time to get into some of Andrew Cunanan's yucky stuff. Yeah, his his shucksy doodles. Yeah. Just not not cool at all. But um, before we do that, something that is cool is hanging out with us in the Patreon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because, you know, you get all the bonus stuff, you get it ad-free, you get early access to episodes. Mm -hmm. Super cool. And if you're at the ten dollar tier or up, you get access to that really cool, awesome Facebook hangout group. oh, yeah, it's awesome. I mean we have two groups we have a free one that's the um case discussion group. anybody can join it. you don't have to be a patron, but our ten dollar group, it feels like a little family, you know it's mm-hmm. a smaller group it's like it feels like everybody knows everybody. everybody calls you friends it's such a like I love it it's such a like fun and just like sweet community, yep, yeah, totally sweet vibes. Yeah, and we've done, gosh, we're up to we're releasing we're releasing mixtape one hundred and eighteen this week. So we've got one hundred and eighteen of those. We've got like probably as many doc jams. I don't know, mm-hmm. um, times and times plus all of our old episodes. Like that's like two hundred episodes to download and binge the moment you sign up. Yes, exactly. So if you just can't get enough of us like we can't get enough of ourselves, Mm -hmm. it'll be great for you. Exactly. Yay. Should we bring up... If you've listened to the first episode, you know the trigger warners. Warners. Oh. The trigger warnings. (laughs) I had a mild stroke just now. A little bit. Yeah. So same ones. Yeah. Okay. Let's get started. Let's do it. All right. So when we last left off, Andrew Cunanan had thrown himself his own going away party because, of course, nobody was going to throw one for him because they're like, bye. I thought you were gone already. Like, get out of here. (laughs) And then he sweet talked like American Express into giving him a one way ticket to Minneapolis somehow, even though he's $40,000 in debt and probably more. Yeah. And he filed bankruptcy. And now he's going to Minneapolis to visit with his best friend Jeff Trail and the love of his life David Madsen and neither of them want to actually ever see Andrew ever again Mm-mm. but they don't have the heart to tell him so were like, that's are where are we are you i thought you died years ago my god <laughs> right just kidding okay, there's yeah. that'll be fun i know and they just didn't have the heart to tell him like they they were really nice people and they felt bad for him yeah it was probably one of those things where they thought like he'll get the hint We'll just let this happen organically. Yeah, exactly. And it just was And not, Andrew don't play that shit. No. Fuck no. He don't read a room. Mm-mm. He don't know how. No, he doesn't. Also, he doesn't care to, but, you know. So, like we said, they don't want him to be there. Jeff had made plans to take out his new boyfriend for a night in the country, and it was uh, his new boyfriend, John's birthday. So... You know, he's like, I don't want to cancel that. Exactly. Like, I'm hanging out with my boyfriend. I don't want you tagging along. It's like a whole thing. Like, I want to spend time with him. So instead, Jeff said, look, you can stay at my apartment while we're gone. David picked Andrew up at the apartment and they hung out that night. Andrew quickly alienated himself from David's friends by lying about his family money. And and like, these people are, they're smart people. Like, Mm -hmm. Andrew just can't stop. Mm-mm. He cannot stop. So he's just like comes in like guns blazing being like I was married to a Peruvian princess or whatever. And it was Jewish princess. But OK. Yes. And, um, you know, like they're like, uh, no, the fuck you were not, sir. Like, whatever. Yeah. Like, let me let me cha-cha this real quick. I'm going to ask Jeeves. <laughs> Didn't happen. Exactly. So he spent Saturday at Jeff's house using Jeff's phone to make long distance calls to California, including to Norman. He sounds like Jimmy Fallon, the idiot boyfriend. Yes. <laughs> I got a. I don't know. I can't remember all the words. He's like, and I'm on get you, kid. <laughs> but it's something I like too. You went right into exactly Jimmy Fallon.
0: And I'm yes.
1: on get you, kid. <laughs> <laughs> it's a cold, bit trimmer with your name. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I love that song. Me too. Yeah. That's Andrew. Oh my God. Andrew. Mm-hmm. I'm married to an Andrew. So this is. I know. I always, I keep forgetting. I'm like, which Andrew are you talking yeah, about? Yeah. I'm like, if Cause anybody same. in like our family or whatever, just like vaguely hears it passing by, they're going to be like, she's talking so much shit. Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Andrew's great. Uh, your husband. You, right. This Andrew. So, yeah. It's so, see, it's so confusing. All right, so Norman says this call was to say goodbye, but Andrew told him he would, quote, keep in touch. And Norman's like, bye. I don't need to keep in touch. Like, get (laughs) out of here. He's like, I really need a Mercedes. (laughs) I just need everything. So on their way back, John and Jeff, John remembers Jeff telling him that he had to talk to Andrew about something, quote, pretty important. But John never found out what that was. So, you know. Yeah. Jeff dropped John off at work and said he'd see him later at John's birthday party that night, and Jeff had baked John a cake. So sweet. Very sweet. John got home from work around 6 p.m. He took a nap before his birthday party and going out that night, and around 8 o'clock, Andrew called Jeff's apartment. Andrew left a message for Jeff saying that he would like to see him and left David's number for Jeff to return his call. Jeff called him back and told John that he was going to swing by David's, talk to Andrew, and then they'd meet for their night out. Jeff left around 9 p.m., but he never made it to the bar. (laughs) And this is like, I mean, I guess Andrew just blatantly was like, it was me, bitches. But like, as far as a timeline and knowing who he's going to be with, you know, it wasn't like Jeff met up with somebody that nobody knew about or that nobody knew he was going to see or it could have been in like this 36 hour time period. You know, it's like he says, hey, I'm going to just drop by here real quick. You know they talk at this time, and then okay, I'll meet you at the bar in just a little bit later. Like we've got a very small window, so we and we know he's going to see Andrew. It's mm-hmm. you know he's doing nothing to try to hide what he that he's behind this essentially. Right around nine forty five p.m., the front door to David's apartment building called up to David's loft, and someone physically came down to open the door because the building didn't have a buzzer system. When Jeff entered David's loft, he was immediately attacked by Andrew. Mm. A forceful blow to the head by a hammer was first. Jeff attempted to protect himself, raising his arms up, but that didn't stop Andrew or protect Jeff. Jeff's raised arms caused him to get hit on his left wrist and hand. Jeff's Swiss Army watch stopped at 9.55 p.m. Jeff fell to the floor unconscious. Andrew continued to hit Jeff with both sides of the hammer 27 times in his head, face, and chest. (sighs) During the attack, Andrew hit the wall and before the door was closed, he hit the door hard enough a neighbor heard it slam shut. The door was open during the first blow so there was blood spatter across the hall and brain matter in the doorframe. Andrew had figured out no one was interested in continuing their relationship with him. He was losing everything, Norman's money, Jeff's friendship, and David's love. Everyone in Andrew's life had gotten tired of him and were making moves to disengage. May I just... No, you may not. Oh, okay. Well, now we know. Mm-hmm. Harken back to wise words, uh, Kate Hudson in How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. Can't lose what you never had. Ooh. hmm Yeah, you didn't lose David's love, but he believed he did. Yes, he did. Yeah. And that's all that matters to Andrew is his the way he sees his life. Exactly. Yes. Jeff's body fell on a rug in the entryway, so he was rolled up in the carpet and dragged behind a sofa before rolling him up. Jeff's watch and ring from the Navy were removed, placed in a bag with a bloody t-shirt, bloody hammer, and the towels used to clean up the blood. This bag was tucked away under the dining room table. what What the fuck is the point? No point. He did not make <sighs> any real efforts to secure the crime scene or take, you know no. remove the evidence or anything like that. He just like. Packaged everything and then put it into another room. Yeah, he's like, here, I'm going to preserve this evidence for you. Yeah, there exactly, you exactly. You dumb bitch. I know. But I don't think he was really that worried about—he didn't care. He wasn't, Yeah. yeah. The blood was cleaned up mostly, but two sets of footprints were left in blood on the hardwood floor. One pair were bare feet and the other set were from someone wearing shoes. John had waited for Jeff at the club, but when he never showed up, he went to Jeff's apartment around 3 a.m., but no Jeff. John waited to see if maybe Jeff would come home with a benign explanation. But when Jeff hadn't shown up by 8 a.m., John called hospitals, jails, Jeff's work, Jeff's other friends, and even called John's own dad a jail administrator. John called the police, who said that unless Jeff's parents called, John would have to wait 72 hours before he could file. Jeff hadn't come out to his parents yet, so John wasn't ready to call them and out him when there was a possibility that Jeff could be fine. Police told John Jeff's a big boy, and he could come and go as he pleased. (laughs) Monday, John went to class, followed his usual routine, and when he went to Jeff's apartment around 8 p.m., Jeff had still not shown up. And since he was still in the 72-hour window, John waited. Meanwhile, David's coworkers were worried because he hadn't shown up for work. Around noon Monday, David's coworker slash friend Linda and his friend Laura met at David's loft. When they knocked on the door, they heard David's dog Prince scratching at the door, and they thought they heard whisk- <laughs> whiskers. <laughs> wow, they have really excellent yes, hearing they if they do. can hear the whiskers. Yes, they do. They're like, wait, wait, wait. I hear two, three whiskers. Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> They thought that they heard whispers. However, no one answered. Linda thought David Stalker had finally done something. The women went back to the office and called the police who asked to meet the women at David's building around 2.30 p.m. However, the officers refused to enter the loft claiming they didn't have probable cause. They had no reason to believe David wasn't in the apartment not answering the door or David had left for a bit and Prince was having separation anxiety. The officers left without entering the loft. That poor dog. I know. Linda and Laura weren't satisfied and left a message for the apartment superintendent, Jennifer Weiberg, with their concerns asking her to check. When Jennifer got the message around 4 p.m., she went to David's loft with another neighbor and friend of David's. They knocked, but the only response they got was Prince barking, so Jennifer used her master key. When they entered, Jennifer saw the body rolled up in a carpet with the feet sticking out. They went back to Jennifer's to call 911. It took 15 to 20 minutes for police to arrive. First on the scene was Sergeant Bob Tichich. I love it. <laughs> Weird name. But it's yeah. kind of T- fun much. to say. Yeah, Tichich. Yeah. Who said, we knew right away it may be a gay thing. Don't like that. Well, okay, a, a gay thing. What does that even mean? Right, like. A, oh, a gruesome just, murder scene, is, is that a gay thing? Right, exactly. Just another gay thing. Ugh. What is that? Okay. I take but back like, what yeah. I said about Tichich. I know like this is the times right I like know, it was Yeah if you it, anything having to do with the gay community was like oh do we have to do that like uh right. you know it's just- And it's not in a very openly gay community like San Francisco San Diego you know like I mean I guess yeah. but still it doesn't make it right it's just this shitty Yeah these two people were freaking like the best people mm-hmm. Jennifer had informed officials David was gay and they immediately assumed the dead body in the loft was David Madsen. David's wallet was on the table and in the bedroom, leg cuffs with keys, duct tape used, and on the roll, porn videos, lube, and steroids. In a black duffel bag, along with an empty gun holster and magazine, was a box of 15 40 caliber bullets. There should have been 25, but 10 bullets were missing. Detectives never went near the carpet roll because they wanted the medical examiner there before anything else. The medical examiner arrived at David's loft around 7.20 p.m. and enrolled the rug to take a look at the body. The body wasn't taken off the rug until they were back at the morgue for fear they'd lose evidence. Friends named David stalker, ex, Greg Nelson, as a possible suspect, and one suggested a man named Andrew, whose last name they couldn't remember, but knew he went into illegal and dangerous things. A friend of David's told the detectives that his hair was very blonde, but the body in the rug clearly had dark, almost black hair. Photos of David confirmed that this dark-haired body was not David. Investigators began to think that this body was actually the friend they'd heard was visiting Andrew, or was visiting David, which would have been Andrew, no last name, because he, he was described as having dark hair. Detectives changed their tactic and now assumed David was their main suspect and Andrew was dead. On Tuesday, John finally spoke with someone at Jeff's work. Work had not heard from Jeff either and were concerned, John had tried hospitals in the area again, but when nothing turned up, John tried again with police. They were at least asking John questions this time, but still regarded, disregarded Jeff's complaint. John's complaint. What did I say, Jeff's? Still disregarded John's complaint. One of their first questions was whether John was Jeff's lover, which John confirmed. He said he wanted to file a missing persons report. The police told him they couldn't do anything without a family member filing the report but Jeff's parents were still unaware anything was amiss. They were focused on Jeff's older sister Lisa, who was 8 months pregnant and had gone into premature labor after a very difficult pregnancy. Anne Trail had also had surgery a couple weeks before due to a cancer diagnosis. The Trails received a call from Jeff's friend and coworker in the late afternoon Tuesday, asking if they'd heard from Jeff. They hadn't, so the friend and John Hackett made an appointment to meet the police face to face. Police finally agreed to file a local missing persons report for Jeff Trail Tuesday, April 29th. They also reported his 1996 green Honda Civic as missing, license plate Navy 91. Around 9 a.m., Jeff's autopsy was started, still thought to be Andrew. His body, still on the rug in order to preserve evidence, was moved. They discovered a wallet in the rear right pocket with Jeff's ID. They found Jeff's Marvin the Martian tattoo, pierced nipple, and toe ring. Oh, I love a toe ring. Mm-hmm. Detectives called Jeff's parents to let them know they'd found their son's body. Now that the body in the rug was identified as Jeff Trail, detectives were confused as to the dynamics but had a ready explanation. <laughs> gay love triangle. It's so obvious. Of course. It's just a, like a, it's just a super gay thing. It's a very gay thing, yes. Yeah. And the thing, the other thing that sucks about so many things that suck about this, but um, the day that Jeff's parents got that call was also the day that his sister... Ha- had the baby so like they're trying to get a hold of jeff for him to come to the hospital because mm-hmm. his niece was just born and then they find out that the reason jeff why he's not said, answering yeah yeah Ugh. how awful tichich was completely convinced david madsen was the murder tichich was described as monotone and with a seemingly breathtaking lack of comprehension of how his blunt speech might affect others he is tone deaf to feelings Perfect. Yeah, and that's great. That's the person you want calling people to let them know that their loved one has passed. Yeah. And this call also outed Jeff. Yeah. Too. Which he like, was completely not delicate with. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. So great. Awesome. Yeah. On Friday, May 2nd, police executed a warrant on Jeff Trail's apartment that Tichich had previously told the friend he could clean. At this time, the only fingerprint from Andrew. That was anywhere for detectives to use was the single thumbprint from Andrew's California driver's license. Meanwhile, David and Andrew were still missing, but David would be found soon and discredit any theories by Tichich. Yeah. So right now, they're not looking at David as a missing and endangered person. They're looking at David as on the run because he killed somebody. Mm -hmm. And they have no concern or empathy for David Madsen at this point. But David's body was found Saturday, May 3rd, 1997 in Chicago around 1045 a.m. David was fully clothed on his back near a lake. He'd been shot through the right eye, right cheek, and the back between his shoulder blades. It appeared his body had been dragged about 20 feet from the murder scene to the spot where it was found. According to officers, David's body appeared, quote, fresh. David's Jeep was gone, but a set of keys was found nearby, including the key fob for his Jeep. Thank God Titchich wasn't on the scene because he would describe the body as fresh and very gay. Yeah, this another gay thing. Are you kidding me right now? Oh, my like, God. What is the city coming to? I know. Jeez. The forensic pathologist decided David had been dead for about 36 hours. There were bugs in David's mouth, and during the processing of the scene, bullets were found from a 40 caliber in the grass. The gun was not found at the site. The body was found Saturday, and the autopsy performed Monday, so they didn't have a name for the body for days. But authorities were certain this was David Madsen, so they got permission to contact the Madsen family. The Madsons received a phone call from detectives at about 2.15 Saturday to prepare them. Once they were certain it was David's body, focus turned to Andrew. A nationwide alert was issued for Andrew Cunanan, aka Andrew de Silva. He was listed as armed and dangerous and wanted for two murders, likely driving David's stolen red Jeep Cherokee. At David's autopsy, the medical examiner collected a number of samples but didn't run tests on any of them to get a more precise time of death. They determined the time of death for David was sometime Friday, May 2nd. Mm-hmm. After murdering David, Andrew goes to Chicago and he's going to go see Lee Miglin. Lee was a real estate bigwig. He'd been married to a woman named Marilyn for 37 years. They had two adult children. Lee and Marilyn were engaged within six weeks of their first date, and 10 years later, they had Marlena, followed by Duke three years later. Lee started making money by selling stainless steel flatware door to door and even sold pre pancake batter out of his car trunk. <laughs> but he was now described as a mogul. Lee's real estate firm, Miglin Beitler was responsible for building many important buildings. Marilyn, just as a side note, um, was a well-known member of the Home Shopping Network, and she sold makeup and perfume. She was like, she was big on the Home Shopping Network. <laughs> like, I don't know, it's kind of cool. Yeah, that is cool. But in like in 1994, her company netted $25 million. And then you've got Lee on top of that doing all the things that he's doing. Like these are very, very wealthy people. Mm -hmm. Talk about a big wig. So Andrew had once told a friend that he was planning to start some kind of business. And he told them that he had an investor in Chicago who was going to back him financially. And he said that that person's name was Duke. And we know that Lee and Marilyn have an adult son named Duke around the same age. So it's possible that that's the connection between the that's Miglins the connection. And- yeah. But the Miglins, all of them adamantly deny knowing Andrew at all. So I don't know how he, I mean, but you know, Andrew would search people out. He didn't just happenstance meet Lincoln. I've already forgotten his last name. I'm so sorry. Lincoln Aston. Was yes. That it? Lincoln Aston. And then Norman, like he would not, I guess, not look people up, but he would make sure that he got information on people because he's certainly not going to put himself in front of somebody who's not wealthy, right? Right. Well, and I think, too, at this stage in where he's at mentally and he's described as a spree killer, he's just seeking revenge on people that he thinks had had what he should have had but didn't get. Mm hmm. Yeah. And he's trying to take any piece of what they have that he mm-hmm. can, you know? Can I get money or whatever? Mm -hmm. Lee was described as quiet and meticulous, always carefully and elegantly dressed, never without a fresh manicure. The Miglin house had to be spotless to the point that Lee demanded a thorough scrubbing of the walls of their garage. Wow. Now that's clean. Yeah. Yeah. Sunday, May 4th, around 8.15 p.m., Marilyn returned home from a business trip, and Lee always picked her up at the airport, but this time he's not there. So she ends up taking a cab to the house, but as soon as she walked in, she knew something was wrong. She went to their neighbors and told them that Lee was missing because she like walked in and she's calling for him and, you know, all these things and he's not answering. And she was like, there's something wrong here. She said that when she entered the house and walked into the kitchen, there was a half-eaten pint of Haagen-Dazs on the counter with a spoon in it that had clearly been out of the freezer for a super long time. In the sink, there was a can of Coke empty and tipped over. And she saw a gun in an upstairs room. So she calls the police, but it had been 15 minutes and nobody came. Mr. Byer offered to go through the house for her, which was the neighbor. The Miglin house was difficult to maneuver for people unfamiliar with the layout because they'd bought two side-by-side townhomes and just opened up the downstairs. But the upstairs was actually still separated. So if you go up a flight of stairs, you have to come back down and go up a different flight of stairs to get to the other half of the house. That's a lot of work. hmm Mr. Byer said he got lost almost immediately, but upstairs he saw things that were unusual. In the library on the desk was a hole on the bone ham with a slice cut out and a knife stuck in it. And there wasn't even a plate under the ham. He continues to make his way through the house. There's a gun on the bathroom counter and black stubble that had been shaved in the sink. It wasn't possible for this to be from Lee. All of his hair was white. He's an older man at this point. Mm Mm-hmm. Byer also noticed that the tub looked like it had been bathed in by someone especially grimy, and the person left towels on the floor. I know that game, the the first time Andrew and I went on a trip together, we uh, we took a bath in the big bathtub, and there was a ring around it because <laughs> he worked outside and did like landscaping that weekend. <laughs> and I was like, I better clean this before the lady comes in here because this is disgusting. <laughs> So he keeps going through. He goes up to the third floor and he found closets opened with Lee's clothes all over the place. Mr. Byer was opening closet doors with a shirt sleeve and slightly nervous one of those doors would open and Lee would tumble out. Oh, bless his heart. And like good for him for keeping Mm -hmm. like. Preserving the crime scene. Yeah. So the police still haven't shown up and Mr. Byer keeps searching and he gets the keys to the garage. When he gets into the garage, he noticed that Lee's green Lexus was missing, but otherwise nothing was concerning. It took Marilyn calling a police captain she knew for the police to finally show up. What is the situation here? Mm -hmm. Like, they're just like, oh, what? Your husband's not home? Get over it, I guess. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. It's awful. So the neighbor is like, you know, maybe we need to check again. Like, something's off. We know something's off. And that's when she found Lee Miglin's body. She'd seen some brown wrapping paper sticking out from under the Jeep, and that was covering Lee. So Lee was fully clothed, lying on his back on the garage floor. All of his clothes were clean without any cuts, despite Lee having been stabbed multiple times. He had one shoe on with a tube of hydrocortisone cream underneath his body. And there were gay porn magazines nearby. There was a white gardening glove that was stuffed into his mouth. He'd been bound with an extension cord around his ankles and there were over two dozen blows to his head, face, and chin. His head had masking tape wrapped around it, almost like a mummy, covering everything except his nostrils and the very top of his head. Hmm. Lee's neck had been slashed, and he had two stab wounds about two inches deep in his chest that punctured his heart. Then, Lee's head was almost decapitated by a garden bow saw that created a a seven-and-a-half-inch gash on the back of his neck that was about two inches deep, cutting into his throat and then two bags of cement were thrown on his chest, breaking every single rib. God. It's just, it's horrific. It's horrific. It's like, why torture somebody and you don't even know this man? Mm -hmm. Like, golly. Then Andrew covered Lee in plastic bags and the brown wrapping paper. Despite the brutality, there was little blood outside of the area and around Lee's body, and there were no defensive wounds on Lee as though he didn't fight at all his family said Lee would have fought. Time of death was estimated between 2 p.m. Saturday and 6 a.m. Sunday. So then there was the question, like, was this a surprise attack from a complete stranger or was Andrew somebody who was invited in? You know, was Lee comfortable enough opening the door for him, letting him inside? Because it seemed like there's no struggle. It seemed like that Andrew was very comfortable in the house. He took a shower. He eats ham and Hagen does like going through all the stuff after, you know, it seemed like he kind of knew that nobody else was going to be coming in to interrupt him, mm-hmm. at least for a time. And $2,000 from the safe was missing. That's not to say that Andrew didn't hold a gun to his head and say, where's your money? Right. Get it out of the safe. But, you know, the police were wondering, did they know each other? Did Andrew know, you know, there was money in the house and stuff like that. It was widely reported that Andrew and Lee never knew each other, and Lee's murder was one of convenience to get a car and to steal things. Three days after Lee's body was found, a red Jeep Grand Cherokee with three parking tickets was located around the corner from the Miglins townhome. The Jeep had a Minnesota license plate and was registered to David Madsen. Mm -hmm. Inside the Jeep was a stub from a nearby parking garage indicating the Jeep parked there Wednesday, April 30th at 6.08 a.m., Andrew left Chicago and Lee's Lexus, which had a car phone that could be tracked even if it wasn't in use as long as the engine was on. However, Andrew made it easy for them by using the phone a couple times. I mean, what, what is he not going to make long distance calls on somebody else's dime? Well, they're not going to make them themselves. That's for sure. So. And a car phone? He must've felt fancy than fuck. Well, yeah. And a Lexus too. Yeah. He's like, um, hello, I'm calling you for my car phone. Yeah. Okay. I'm living the best life I've ever lived before. It wasn't until Friday, May 9th, that Jeff Trail's colleague and boyfriend were searching through Jeff's apartment. They figured out that Jeff's 40 caliber was stolen and altered and alerted police. <laughs> On May 10th, America's Most Wanted started airing pieces about Andrew Cunanan asking for information. Meanwhile, Andrew's in New York listening to news reports revealing the Lexus phone is being tracked. That is so fucking annoying because you know that was one of those things that the police were like, do not fucking tell the press this. Mm-hmm. We need to figure out where this guy is because now they, they're piecing it together that all these murders are by him. Yeah. We're tracking him. Nobody better fucking tell somebody. And then they see it on the news and they're like, gonna be fucking kidding uh-huh. me. Uh-huh. And that there goes the entire investigation. Exactly. Now, where does he go? We can't track him the way that we were. Like, come on. It very much pisses me off when media leaks shit that Versace could still be alive. Mm-hmm. William Reese could still be alive. Well, we yeah, we haven't even gotten into... Yeah. Yeah. So Andrew rips the antenna off the car and tried to just destroy the car phone, but he couldn't fully disconnect it. So Andrew needed to get rid of this car. Andrew visited an information center and asked about sites a tourist should see. He was told about Fence Point National Cemetery where soldiers from the Civil War and Germans POWs from World War II were buried. 45-year-old Bill Reese had been the caretaker of the cemetery for 22 years. He loved his job. The night of May 9th, around 5.30 p.m., Bill wasn't home. Bill had recently been diagnosed with muscular dystrophy, so his wife, Rebecca, was worried. Rebecca drove out to the cemetery, and when she got to the office, Rebecca called her father, and then she called the police. Police found nothing as well, but then they noticed the basement. After breaking the locks, which were locked on both the inside and outside, the police found Bill Reese at the bottom of the stairs slumped up against the wall. Suicide was ruled out because there was no weapon. Bill Reese was murdered solely for his car. Why can't you just take the fucking car? I know. Yeah. Save him. Like he, I mean, everybody knows it's you anyway. So, yeah, exactly. And he locked him in from the inside and the outside. Mm-hmm. Like, just leave him. He can't call the police immediately. He doesn't have a car phone. So you're not being tracked. Right. Like, He doesn't know your name. He doesn't know anything about you. Right. Absolutely. And again, everybody knows that you're on a spree. So what the fuck? Andrew drove straight down the I-95, which runs from Maine to Florida, without being stopped once. The police agencies and FBI were arguing jurisdictions, allowing Andrew to escape to Miami after a brief stop in South Carolina to steal a license plate. The owner never reported it. He thought it fell off. The FBI contacted the National Gay and Lesbian Anti-Violence Project to get their help getting the word out to members of the LGBTQ plus community. In New York, a $10 million, no, that's not right. (laughs) That's a lot of money. In New York, a $10,000 reward was offered, but other places like San Diego and Miami had very little, if any, communication between the FBI and the LGBTQ plus community. So there were no rewards or warnings. Andrew had traveled over a thousand miles in two days and parked Reese's truck right out in front of a Normandy Plaza hotel and left it for weeks while he lived there. Gianni Versace's mansion was nearby on Ocean Drive and was very easy to find and well known. It was called a high camp tropical fever dream and a palazzo in drag. Versace was everything Andrew always dreamed of being. So Andrew spent his time stewing over the injustice of Versace having his life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because what did Versace do? He didn't like work hard. He didn't like you know, practice his craft every day. He didn't like get up early, stay up late. Like he didn't do any of that shit and look at him now. Yeah. And look at what Andrew's been doing. Literally nothing. And he has not been handed everything. How fair is that? Yeah. Andrew spent the next few months living in the Normandy Plaza Hotel doing lots of drugs, selling himself for money to buy more drugs, and going out to gay clubs. Fortunately for Andrew, the FBI nor any other agencies bothered to distribute flyers about him. Andrew wasn't even disguising himself very much other than like a hat or a cheap wig sometimes, which brings me back to Luca Maniura Mm-hmm. with the cheap wigs. It says someone who is sitting in a cheap wig right now, but anyway. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> June 12th, Andrew was placed on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. The 449th person added, thanks to America's most wanted. However, the, before the murder of Gianni Versace, Andrew's only pictures were faxed. Older pictures of him when he was thin and put together. No flyers were distributed in Miami. Miami Beach police had a flyer on the wall in their department. Oh, you know what though? That's actually the best place to have it. I regularly visit the police department and just, like, look at their walls. <laughs> totally. You know, just to see what's going on. Like, well, hey, guys, got any updates for me? And they're like, hey, girl, you know? Yeah. And if you don't go there personally, do you even want to help? Exactly. That's what I'm saying. It's like, if you want to help, you've got to put in the work. So, exactly. like, I show up day in and day out looking at the walls, <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, I'm like, not. hey, Greg, how's your walls doing? What you got? <laughs> exactly. June 12th, he moved Reese's truck into a parking garage just blocks from Versace's mansion. July 7th, Andrew went to a pawn shop to pawn a gold coin he'd stolen from Lee Miglin's safe. They offered $190 for the coin, which made Andrew mad, but he went through with the transaction. The pawn shop had to ID check and get contact information and a signature. So they get his um, driver's license, or I think it was a passport. He filled out the forms, honestly, including the address at the Normandy, then he, he showed <laughs> mm-hmm, he showed his U.S. passport for ID, and he signed the form Andrew Cunanan. Yeah. So what happens is, so it was required by law that the pawn shop turn over the paperwork to the Miami Beach PD. The woman, the owner, did, and the police did nothing. In what? Nothing. The, nope. So William Hagmeyer, head of the FBI pro- profiling unit at the time. Also, the man to take down or to take Bundy's um, final confession said at one point, Andrew's making a Bundy run. He's going to hit Florida next. Hagmeyer was disregarded. Andrew's friend, Liz Choate's husband, was, told the FBI Gianni Versace should be on their list of possible victims. Also disregarded. What the fuck? You know, oh, but you know what? It's a gay thing. Yeah. It yeah. doesn't matter. Yeah. Let the gay police handle this or something. I don't like whatever. Right. Norman Blatchford also told the FBI Miami would be a good place to check. That was ignored. Multiple other people mentioned Versace to the FBI without follow through. The FBI refused to take into consideration that Andrew was gay, so they didn't focus on the places where Andrew would go to slip into the local scene without sticking out. This woman at the pawn shop did exactly everything that she was supposed to do. And where did we say the one flyer is? At the police department. And where did she fax that fucking passport to? The police department. The police department. It's just like... Yeah. Did all of these people just hate Versace and want him to die? Right. I, I guess... I it kind of feels that way. Yeah. I know. I heard that the reason why it was left on someone's desk was the person whose desk it was left on. He was out and not in the office. And they had taken so many people out of the office to put them on patrol to look for Andrew that nobody was there like doing the police work like the paperwork Hmm. now I don't know if that's true or not I'm just saying yeah because they didn't like where did they go look for him I would just like to see that that record it just sounds like a very police made excuse but I don't know Uh uh-huh yeah we were working so hard on this case that we missed all the warning signs of this case like everybody who called in and said hey don't Hey, check this. Hey, well, and he's going to go after Versace. They didn't put out any of the flyers or anything? Like, come on. Mm-mm. Yeah, definitely. Tuesday, July 15th, 1997, Andrew Cunanan shot Johnny Versace. He walked up behind Versace and shot him at point-blank range. The first shot hit right behind his left ear, tearing through his brain, specifically the base of his brain, destroying his spinal cord. Versace was immediately brain dead, but his heart was still fluttering. The second bullet entered the right side of his face near his nose. Versace fell to the ground on the steps of his mansion. The first shot was so close that Versace had what they call stippling on his neck. And upon exiting Versace's head, the bullet shattered against one of the bars of the metal gate. A fragment hit a dove in the eye, killing it immediately and leaving it lying dead near Versace. Okay, but do you know what that kind of makes me think of? And it makes me so sad. That Prince song, When Doves Cry. Oh, my God. I know it's not the same message, but still. Yeah. That's just, like, fucking absolutely wild. Like, I don't even know how to describe that, but fucking absolutely wild pretty much hits it on the head, I I feel like it covers it. Yeah, okay. All right. All right. It's covered. Yeah. I mean, like, like, how? I just... Yeah. Wow. A neighbor not even 30 feet away saw it all. Andrew had been so focused on killing Versace that he hadn't seen her or seemed to even care. She noticed the killer walked like Donald Duck, and she was able to provide a description and in, in the direction that he ran. After hearing the shots, Antonio ran to the gate and saw Versace lying in a pool of blood. A friend took off after Andrew, but Andrew was able to evade him and eventually police. Of course, because like why even look for him? Like Who mm-hmm. gives a fuck? 911 was called at 844 a.m., and police were on the scene within two minutes. Versace already had no pulse and wasn't breathing. At 9.12, officers entered a parking garage in their search and found a pile of clothing next to a pickup truck, which was William Reese's truck. They realized their assassin was likely Andrew Cunanan, which they already fucking knew before, but okay. Yeah. By 9.21 a.m., Gianni Versace was pronounced dead at Jackson Memorial Hospital. Still no bullets or information, I'm sorry, still no bulletins or information was released to the public about Andrew Cunanan. Plus, the one eyewitness they had provided a phony name and then just ghosted. So, perfect. Thank you so much for coming forward. We really appreciate that. A press release right at 8.30 p.m. that night gave a description of Andrew. Andrew made no attempt to get rid of any incriminating evidence in Reese's car. He left his driver's license and passport, Lee Miglin's Lexus insurance card, and Bill Reese's social security card. (laughs) What a freaking idiot. I know. It was determined that the 40 caliber casings in the murders of David Madsen, Jeff Trail, Bill Reese, and later Johnny Versace all matched. And still, no one issued an arrest warrant because it's circumstantial evidence and they didn't have the gun. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Like, uh it's pretty fucking circumstantial, if yeah. you ask me. Like, I mean, it's like, you're there. <laughs> you're there. But also, like, poor Like Versace had gone through so many, I did not realize this, that he had as many health issues as he did before he died. And, you know, he'd gone through chemo for cancer and he'd had some other things and like that could have killed him. And he got through those. Yeah, he persevered. And then this is what took him out. Yes. To fight so hard. lunatic. And then, yeah. Who was jealous because he wasn't willing to work for what he wanted. Uh, Absolutely. The manhunt for Andrew Cananan was described as the largest manhunt since James Earl Ray, but was eventually considered the largest failed manhunt. I would agree with that. Yeah. On Wednesday, the lady from the pawn shop contacted police to follow up on the form she had completed, and because she was sure that that was the same Andrew and had might come back for the coin, police staked out the pawn shop, but Andrew didn't come back. At least one investigator on the case admitted that they were nowhere close to finding Andrew ever. The different agencies were not sharing information or evidence. A profiler for the FBI prophetically said, if he's still in Miami, he plans on dying in Miami. It wasn't... And they're good at their job. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Well, oh well. I mean, yeah, yeah. It wasn't until July 23rd that he'd found out how right he was. On that day, Fernando Carriera, a property manager, went to check on one of his properties. This property was a light blue houseboat. Carriera and his wife trekked over to the houseboat around 3.45 p.m. on July 23rd. The door was unlocked. He and his wife walked into the house to find every light on, and the typically open shades were pulled closed. Carriera kept walking through the house, and the living room cushions were pulled off the couch with a blanket to make a pallet on the floor with the chairs upturned to make a fort. That sounds fun. It kind of does. It really does. A pair of sandals on the floor suggested someone was in the house. while. Reaching for the gun, he'd always kept on him. He heard a gun go off upstairs. The Carrieres bolted from the house. In his panic, Fernando fumbled with his phone calling his son instead of 911, so he asked him to call. Police were there within minutes, and the Carrieres had watched the house from a distance, so no one had exited the house. Police quickly jumped to the conclusion that Andrew Cannon was inside and weren't sure if he was still in there waiting to fire on police. For hours, police staked out the houseboat, contacted the owner, and did outside investigating before deciding to enter the houseboat. At 8 p.m., Peppergas was shot into the house, and by 8.20, the SWAT team entered. On the second floor, they found the cold body of a male, gunshot wound through his mouth, and a gun in his hand with no vital signs. He had at least a few days' growth of beard, with his head on two pillows that were now blood-soaked. Due to excessive tear gas, it wouldn't be until 9.30 p.m. before detectives working the case could enter the houseboat with masks and identify the body as Andrew Cunanan. He'd used the same gun he'd used to kill all of his victims and to end that he used to end his own life. The Miami sergeant who was there and had pursued Andrew for days said, we immediately high-fived each other. Why? (laughs) You didn't do this. Yeah, we didn't do anything. Yeah by 10:24 p.m. the news reported andrew cananan the man who killed johnny versace had taken his own life with the same gun he used to kill the italian fashion designer the news was unconcerned with the other people he murdered well they're just regular gross people exactly we don't give a shit about these people i know it ju- it sucks because like you know the netflix thing is called american crime story the assassination of versace and like i get it. everything you watch is the assassination uh, the murder of versace the assassination of versace yeah, and yes, he was murdered, but so were four other people. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's just, I mean, ugh, whatever. However, it wasn't until 5.10 and the next morning that the body was officially identified as Andrew Cananen with fingerprints. The manhunt was over and Andrew Cananen was dead. Carolla, let's high five each other because we did it. Yeah. woohoo! He hit out and we never would have found him. Mm-hmm. And honestly, um, it took us 72 hours after we heard the gunshot to even get in there because we weren't really sure. Yeah. We were like, uh, what could that mean? Is it just like a desk pop? Yeah. You no, know, we don't know. Yeah. We're not sure what kind of a pop it is. So we better just wait four more hours just in cases. Exactly. I mean, I understand you got to keep yourself safe. Well, sure. But they, but they spent a lot of time investigating the outside. Yeah, and they didn't know who there was no way they could have known who was inside, but everybody was like, well, it's definitely Andrew Cunanan and no, they were right, but it's like, okay, well, if you think that's who it is, then don't you want to try to arrest him? Right. I don't so know. That I, you can prosecute him, like <laughs> there's very little that the police did well. Right. The Miami police did well in this case, so any of them. Yeah. They wouldn't even come to Lee Miglin's house. His wife is obviously a hysterical woman percent. ignore her. And not to mention the blatant homosexuality. I mean, homosexuality, my gosh, the homophobia. Yes. And the just awful way that these victims were treated. Right. It's just so, it's it's awful. Yeah. And the only reason they cared about finding the person that killed Versace was because he was famous. Mm -hmm. And God, they were there real quick hmm They would not have responded that quickly if Versace was, like, not as famous as he was. Oh, there's no. just no way. Nope. Because he was openly gay. Right. But that's it. Mm, that's it. That's it, guys. Do you think that he killed Lincoln Aston? I do. Because when we talked about it earlier, you said there's some other stuff. Well, Did you- because that's kind of his MO. When somebody cuts him off and they're done with him, Oh, uh. Uh-huh. Then he goes into yeah. a rage and he kills people. So. Yeah. And that could have also been a means for him to I mean, I don't know. I don't know what yeah, he doesn't necessarily benefit from it other than he has this rage. Right. Yeah. In the Netflix thing, they portrayed it as Lincoln was at a bar, picked up this guy who he kept seeing at this bar or whatever, brings him back to his house. And that, like, Lincoln makes a move on him, and then he kills him because, you know, gay panic. Right. Or whatever. And that Andrew was there and saw it, but just didn't say anything. Yeah. (laughs) Like, okay. I mean, I know they have to change a bunch for, like, artistic license or whatever. Right. So, yeah. I don't know. Interested to see what you guys think about it. Obviously... Uh, every single one of these victims was super important. Yes, 100%. And, um, you know, thanks for listening. Yeah, thank you so much. We will catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening, and we will meet you back here next week. Bye.